I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am your host, Andy Johnson. Today, we've got a fun uh, little thing we haven't done it in a while. We're doing an architecture mailbag, so this is going to be all about golf courses and architecture. Uh, joining me is Garrett Morrison, one of my co-hosts on this podcast, and we're going to dive into all things golf architecture. Um, this was uh, We got to a slew of questions. We asked for questions on Twitter, uh, got a bunch of them, and I think we'll end up doing a part two on Tuesday along with an interview that Garrett did. So we will we'll do some more of these, and we'll probably put up a call for questions on Instagram uh, shortly. So uh, as a quick reminder, if you're interested in golf architecture, if you want more of this stuff, we're having daily discourse in Club TFE. Uh, that's our our membership. It is $120 for the year. We're doing uh, things like Design Notebook, which is a every Monday or early in the week uh, column that dives into all the things going on in the design golf architecture world. We do a weekly course profile, and then we do a monthly member-only video that is always on, you know, kind of golf architecture. We recently had Tom Doak discussing the routing of Ballyneal. Uh, we had a video this month about the Lido. So uh, if you're interested in that, sign up at thefriedegg.com slash membership. It's $120 for the year. You get also like early access to events and different things. Thanks. And uh, without further ado, here is Garrett Morrison. Garrett, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a big fan. I'm excited to be on the podcast. <laughs> And, uh, you know, this has been a dream of mine for a while. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, uh, roles reverse. You're usually hosting when I, when I come on. So, uh, it's great to have you. It's, uh, we haven't done one of these in a while. Every time I put a, I, you know, I put a call out for questions. We got so many and I, uh, it makes me think we probably should do more of these in the future. So these are, uh, these are fun to do. We're going to do an architecture golf course mailbag here, just kind of, uh, run through a bunch of listener reader questions and uh and it it should be uh we should cover a lot of ground. So, um are you ready to go? Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. I always enjoy a mailbag, so let's get into it. All right. What well, uh let's start out with uh something that originally I thought we were going to talk about on this pod, but I kind of figured we'd table it till the end of the year. Um Besides the Lido, what new courses are you excited about from an architectural standpoint? And this is from Roger Dornick. Now, are these courses that I've visited personally? No, it can be anything. There are a lot of new builds going on out there right now. Um, so I'm going to have to think about this for a second. I'll Where answer, would you start with it? Yeah, I'll, I'll go I'll go with one that I saw um, that I'm very, very excited about opening is Sedge Valley. Uh, I played, I did the preview loop a couple months ago. Um, when I was in Chicago or a month ago, 
And I was really blown away uh, with Sedge Valley. I think it is uh, it's going to be it, it's just, you know, it's a different golf course in terms of some of its, you know, just the way it is. It's, it's going to be a par 68. Uh, we don't have many new golf courses that kind of flirt with par. So I, I like that. I am I've long been in a camp of like we place way too much emphasis on par. The other thing that I love about San uh, Sedge Valley is that it um, kind of I think it should reframe the way we think about width and design. It is very, very wide. Um, you, the, the, a lot of the corridors are shockingly wide. And this is a common trait at, uh, at Sand Valley. Mammoth Dunes has a similar feel. I think Lido is pretty wide. Um, Lido is wide. There's, I mean, it's all short grass. Yes. Basically. If it's not short grass, it's, it's, it's waste. And Sedge Valley's corridors maybe aren't as, as wide as Mammoth Dunes, but for in a part, smaller course. And parts they are. At part, yeah. Parts of the fairways. What I love about Sedge Valley's fairways is there is ample width. But if you want to play aggressively, if you want to take driver out and push it, if you, you know, not always, this isn't the case on every hole, but where you want to be is protected. Mm-hmm. So there's ample width, but it comes with ramifications. And it's not, you're not hitting into punch bowl green after punch bowl green. The width has purpose. And I think that that has been a little bit of a trend in golf is that we, we, see this this width movement and everybody's building wide but the key the the key to wide is having reasons for width you know and that could be angles of greens um if you want to create dynamic width which i would call dynamic width is it's wide in parts it narrows down in parts it it fluctuates right it's not just a uniform wide thing um what width allows you to do is create incredible strategy and it's wasted if the greens aren't situated on angles and with repelling as well as gathering slopes, you know? So I think what Sedge Valley is going to do, it's going to be, I think it'll be, it'll be interesting. The land's really, really kind of like um, rollicking. I would describe it as it's, it's a, it's, you know, I think it's probably the most interesting land it's going to be like a shorter golf course less par but it's going to be an intense golf course um it is not going to be it's a little bit different than like what we've started to become used to with dream golf where it's you know it's still friendly in parts but it's not like all friendly yeah i got to see sedge valley too at least the the preview loop of holes there were a few holes still being built when i was last there and it is a very exciting course. And one thing to add to your observation about the width of the corridors there is that a lot of the fairways have a hog's back feature in them or different platforms that you can hit to to get a good angle or something like that. So they're not these big half pipes, right? They don't gather balls to the center. They are, you know, they look wide but they maybe don't play that way. And then in addition to that, what you mentioned, the greens are not receptive from all angles. The greens are sometimes pretty small. So what you have is the combination of big fairways with lots of different 
gnarly features to them and small greens that tend to prefer approaches from certain places. And it's a pretty compelling combination. And I think people are really going to enjoy that course. It's very different from the other courses at Sand Valley. So, um, yeah, excited about that one um, for sure. I think uh, real quick on that, too, is just I think it's going to have a very unique identity, which is obviously what you want with a resort. And if we take Lido out of it and we're going to talk about Lido and this, we got a bunch of questions on Lido. But if you take Lido out for my two cents, it, from what I saw, I saw, I think, 13 holes. It's probably for me, it's going to be my favorite golf course out there. Um, that's just my opinion. I think, again, with any mega resort, you want to have this type of discourse. But for me, that's going to be probably settle in as my favorite. Better than the sandbox. Oh, that's tough. Sandbox <laughs> might still be my favorite. I, I think that's like the best short course I've I've played. I agree. <laughs> the sandbox is unbelievable. <laughs> the greens are so amazing. Um, so a new course that I saw this year that got me thinking and made me excited was the Glen Golf Park in Madison, Wisconsin. In many ways, this is a fairly ordinary golf course on a pretty ordinary piece of land. It's nine holes. It's affordable. It's a municipal course, I believe. Um, it is owned by the by the city of Madison. But what they've done out there in the recent renovation that was headed up by Craig Haltom, Brian Schneider also helped, Jay Blasey helped. There were a number of people coming in and offering assistance. Sarah Mess lives in um, Madison and was there quite a bit. It was a Michael Kaiser funded renovation. And what they did was really smart in the sense that they didn't try to do a lot. They removed some trees. They opened up some corridors. They introduced a lot of short grass, right? It's mostly one cut of grass out there. There is some rough, but it's very wide and the corridors kind of link up with each other. And then they just focused on making really, really interesting greens. There are not many bunkers on this course. A ton of the holes are bunkerless. And so it's going to be very reasonable to keep this course up with a low green fee. But the golf is very, very interesting. The holes use the land in good ways. And the greens introduce all kinds of compelling stuff into the game. So um, I really liked the Glen Golf Park in the sense that it was humble. They weren't trying to impress you with architectural fireworks. They were just trying to make a really fun place to play that was also going to be easy to maintain. And I'd love to see golf architecture at affordable courses move in this direction. Think about how many bunkers you can actually afford to maintain on a year-to-year -year basis. It's probably not as many as a lot of courses have. And so they're able to focus their funds out there on good turf and on you know reasonable playing conditions, and they can keep their green fee low. So I was very impressed with the Glen Golf Park, and it it gives me a new reference point for what a very good Muni renovation looks like. Yeah, uh, along the same lines, I think a a similar um, 
golf course, a similar project, a little, I mean, obviously a little bit different. It's a fully adaptive, fully accessible golf project in the upper Midwest um, that I saw recently was the loop at Chaska. Um, and, and what you talked about, very humble. There's no bunkers. Um, you know, they, they want it to be like, basically, you know, anybody can go play here and mm-hmm. not without limitations and, and, you know, from adaptive, uh, play, yeah. you know, bunkers. no, no climbing in and out of bunkers. Yeah. That's another problem with bunkers is that, you know, for a lot of people, they're difficult to get in and out of. So this golf course, which Ben Warren uh, redid with the help of a lot of talented people, um, is uh, it used to be the Chaska Town Par 30 will open next year. And it will it is uh, it's just got awesome nine, nine awesome greens. It's a it's got one short par four. The rest are par threes. And it's just going to be such a fun place to play. It's right down the street from Hazeltine. So I think a lot of people will be talking about it the week of the USAM next year. I mean, it's it's like basically across the lake from Hazeltine. And it is just, I think, like a great example of what every town could have um, in terms of like, this is on kind of nothing land. It's it's very, you know, and it's just a bunch of cool greens. And I think they did it for a, bu- a pretty, pretty reasonable budget. They did some fundraising in the town. And it's got a great cause, and and I think it'll be a great entrance entry point for the for the game of golf uh, in Chaska. So that was another project along the same lines that I think I'm really excited about on on different side of things. All right, Jay Spurg Golf. What is your favorite course? Each of you saw for the first time this year. Not the Lido. <laughs> I mean, probably the Sandbox. Honestly, I I hadn't seen the Sandbox before. I hadn't been to Sand Valley. I went to Sand Valley twice this year and really was stunned by how good the sandbox was. I really do think it's the best par three course that I've seen. You know, I would put it even above Bandon Preserve, which is obviously spectacular. But the greens at the sandbox are so well made. There's such a level of craft that went into them that I, you know, would have to put the course at the top of my list for the resort, even up against the regulation courses that exist there. So that's one. I also hadn't seen Bel Air Country Club before this year and obviously really enjoyed playing out there and found it very interesting. One big takeaway for me from Bel Air is that the invention of the golf cart has suppressed so much innovation in golf architecture. Because if the golf cart had been widely available when George Thomas built Bel Air in the mid to late 20s, he wouldn't have come up with all those different solutions for getting players across that very severe property. He wouldn't have needed to maybe build some of those tunnels He wouldn't have needed to come up with that idea for the elevator that takes you up to the 10th tee. Maybe even that like the swinging bridge wouldn't have been necessary because people would have just had golf carts to get them from one place to the next. But as it is at Bel Air, you have all these creative solutions to the problem of getting players on foot from hole to hole 
on a property where that's nearly impossible. And so what it made me think is that more golf architects would have come up with stuff like this had the golf cart not been invented. Adding to that, I would say that um, that golf course today would be significantly better if it was walking only. The cart paths are, you know, it's not a very big property. The corridors aren't wide and the cart paths are, are very much a demerit to the golf course out there. And in listen, like not every golf course can be walking only, uh, you know, George Thomas down the street, LACC is walking only. Right. And, and that, you know, the, the North course there just, you know, without the way it's presented, the, and the architecture is just a notch up because there are no cart paths all over the place. You know, there, you don't have a Barranca, you know, with a cart path right next to it. Right. You know, it's, it's, it, and this is like the tough thing about Bel Air is like, you know, they, it, and listen, walking only is not, not it for every membership. And I think for Bel Air's membership, their atmosphere, walking only wasn't really in the cards. So with that in mind, it is what it is. But that golf course, because of cart paths, is, is, a, a little bit could be a little bit better. It could be just, you know, you, if you talk about, and I wrote about this with, um, country clubs, uh, restoration. I think like a lot of people, it, the country club in Cleveland, a lot of people I ran into were like, well, they didn't do that much. And it's like, well, you know, you're, they did a big project with Gil Hans and their project was about getting from 80% or 75% to, trying to get to a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. I don't think they I, got... I played the country club a couple of years ago and it was really, really good. And, and so there's different levels of like work. Right. And for Bel Air, you know, there's a couple things that are, that are hung, that hung are hung up from getting it all the way. Two big things are the, are the, they didn't restore the brank on the back nine and the cart pass, you know? And I think those were two things that the club pushed back on. Right. Um, for, for the country club, for example, Gill's work there, it got, it's got, it's gotten it really close to being as good as it can be, you know? Um, and I think that's the thing is like, there's different projects, right? And the, the country club renovation wasn't going to be a shock and awe because it was in a good spot before, you know, it wasn't in a bad spot. It was in a spot where it could get incrementally better. It's not like a big overhaul, right? Like the, like the Bel Air renovation was, where it's a completely different golf course now. So um, for me, I, I'll answer this with kind of two here. I'll, I'll do a public. The park um, was my favorite public project that I saw this year um, down in West Palm Beach. I think it's, it's, a, it's an awesome golf course in an area that doesn't have awesome public golf. And I played it the day after I played Augusta National. And I, I can say this, like, truthfully, I was as excited to see the park as I was to play Augusta National because I know that area of the country and, like, public golf is horrendous there. And now they have a very, very good public golf course, one of the best public golf courses in the country. It was done by Gil Hans. And what was shocking to me, was amazing to me, actually, was, like, you go to the park and the first hole was like 
straight out of Augusta National. It's got this giant false front that you would see on like the 5th or the 14th at, at Augusta National. And it's just like, oh, like this is this is the way public golf should be, right? Is that it should have features that like you could take that green, that first green and put it on Augusta National and it wouldn't feel out of place if they added a 19th green, right? And that to me is what's so cool about the park. It is it is high highbrow great architecture that's available to the public if you're a resident very cheap and i hear people complaining about like florida residence rates i think they're 125 or 150 it's like let me tell you something if you plop that course in chicago and charge 150 dollars for illinois residents people would be ecstatic overjoyed like they're currently paying a hundred dollars to play Harborside, which is a steaming pile of garbage, right? <laughs> so like anybody complaining about the the Florida resident rate at West Palm at the at the park at West Palm Beach, like you guys need a reality check. There there are terrible golf courses in that same area charging more money for way worse golf. So all right. And then uh on the private side, um a course that blew me away didn't have like Huge expect. I think that this is always like the case. I'm going to take Augusta National out of this, right? Since we already talked about that course that blew me away uh, this year. Low expectations was St. George's, which is on Long Island. It's in the middle of Long Island. It's uh, a Devereaux Emmett design. You do not hear a lot about it, and it's because of it's it's kind of this Long Island effect because of National Golf Links and Shinnecock, and then like Beth Page. You just don't hear about a lot of the other golf courses on Long Island. And this place is outstanding. Terrific land, really cool greens, and some like really quirky features like, you know, trench bunkers. Just like there's on the back nine, the 10th hole is this, this kind of like sweeping dog leg that's semi drivable down to a punch bowl green that sits on the road. So out of bounds left, right off the green. Like it's just a neat, golf course that's got like tons of different features and then on the back nine in the middle of the back nine you have this like amazing land that would fit in at shinnecock right like you play a few holes on this land that is just like huge scale stuff but then on other parts it's got some like kind of smaller scale features it is just a really neat neat golf course and probably probably the best example of Devereaux Emmett. Um, and, and that golf course has been doing a really like, you know, project based restoration over a number of years. It's a great example of a golf course that's gotten better every year for 10 years. Devereaux Emmett is one of those underappreciated East coast architects, right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe looks like a fried egg event course next year, hopefully, but that I'm oh my super you're comfortable enough to say that on the air believe we believe we are pretty locked in there so yeah very excited about that that event um on long island so all right uh next question we will go here to we'll ask a Lido question since we've kind of brushed around it after checking out Lido, where does their berits fall in the rankings and do any of the other ideal holes really shine? And you can you can choose to answer one part of that question or both parts of that question, and that's from Jay Fischel. Yeah, the the Barrett's hole is is pretty stunning. 
It's huge. It's fun. You can hit a driver there, even if you hit your driver much farther than the hole accommodates because you can run just it. kind of bunt it up there and run it up there. And it's super fun. It, it functions as a beer. It's really, really well. You know, the original was on the beach and obviously they couldn't recreate that in Wisconsin. So the effect maybe isn't quite the same, but it's a, a pretty astonishing hole. And almost all of the holes at, at at the Lido in Wisconsin are astonishing. You know, it really is an impressive project. As far as other template holes that stood out, I would say the Cape Hole, which is five. Am I right about that? Yeah, there's no water on it either. It's a I know. shocking development. that Amazing. <laughs> there's no diagonal drive across water. The green is designed in the cape fashion, and that's really what uh, a cape hole is. But I love that hole because the tee shot has these different options. You know, the fairway has this big right to left tilt. And if you hit your drive toward the right, toward a spot that's blind to you, then you'll get a much better result. You'll have a much better angle into the cape green which but is a crazy tee- it's a crazy green too it's a wild green it has wonderful little contours toward the back edge really nicely sculpted as all of the greens there are if you hit your tee shot more towards the left to the portion of the fairway fairway that you can see you'll have a really really tough second shot because the green is very shallow from that angle and you'll be hitting over some bunkers and there are bunkers behind the green and you have to be very precise with your approach from that angle. So I think that one works really well strategically and it gives you a new understanding of what a cape hole can be. The neat thing Um, about that hole, I think too, real quick is, is off the tee, the like it's the play isn't directly at it's a, a, if you play directly at the green, that's the less advantaged angle. Mm-hmm. The right play, as you mentioned, it's blind and it's away. So you, you're playing away from the target to a blind spot to get the advantage in, which I think is a really cool feature. Like it's counterintuitive to what you want to do. Like if you went up there with no caddy, you know, which they require caddies out there. But if you went there with no caddy, everybody would play left the first time. And I think that's one of the things about great architecture is that you like a lot of times walk off a hole after first time playing it. Like, you know, they got me, they got me. I should have played the other way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. It, it. it is completely counterintuitive to play the hole really the way you should play it. Um, another of the template holes that is a big standout at the Lido is the Alps hole, which is number 10 big hill in front of the green It's blind from most portions of the fairway. And again, kind of what you're talking about with the cape hole, your intuition might be to fire your tee shot right toward the green to try to carry the hill and get as close as possible. But at least for me, the play is way out to the right. There's a sliver of fairway out there. And if you hit your drive far enough, you can actually catch a glimpse of the green around the hill going in. I think that's a a very neat Alps hole. I don't think I've seen one that's quite as good as that one, though I haven't 
played national golf links i hear that one is pretty good <laughs> that too. one's really good <laughs> so um if it's anything like this one it's really there's awesome a, there's a lot of great alps holes i i think like one of the things that i having played a lot of the the rainer catalog at this point in my life is that like alps holes are super cool and we should have more of them in golf where we're feasible because like if you think about the alps at um at yale that's an mm-hmm. amazing golf hole the alps old at, mcdonald yes the alps at old mcdonald amazing golf hole the alps uh the 18th at at uh at st louis country club is an amazing alps finisher um and like just kind of an audacious last hole uh there are there's just an amazing like the idea of a blind shot uh the alps hole at fisher's island has to be in the conversation for best alps hole of any of them you know the alps hole at fisher's island incredible so i just in general the world needs more alps holes and you know really it it tugs on a few things that i think like in a large part of development of golf courses in America was a lot like the idea of fairness. Alps holes aren't fair. You can't see the target. Sometimes they're punch bowls and they're, they can bring luck in, but that, that is one of the reasons probably we don't have as many Alps holes is that people are worried about safety and fairness. Cause they're, they're just thrilling. They're thrilling, thrilling golf holes to play. And there are so many different ways to make one work. Yes. Right. There are, you know, depending on the piece of land, you can give players different ways of seeing the green on the second shot. And that's always the fun thing about an Alps hole is not just like the blind shot, but the idea that you can find your way around it, that there are many different possible solutions and you can kind of try them out if you play the course multiple times. Yeah. I think that's the thing with Lido. Um, it's it's a hard thing about resort courses when you have a resort course and it's not really a resort course. It's loosely one. Yeah. It's like, really a member course, but yeah. it's connected. It's, it's a golf course. Like I played it once and I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Like one of the things that, you know, we as a team behind the curtain here, like talked about was like, maybe we don't write about the Lido until we, like play it a couple times right yeah um just because you're just starting to understand there's so much so many different routes so many different things you can do that it it's a it's like kind of an onion golf course where you want to see mm-hmm. it more and more um in terms of other templates out there i think you have to mention the channel hole um which is an amazing amazing golf hole it's and, not really a template hole though yeah eh, is it kind of it's super unique to it i guess yeah right and yeah. uh, and then the 18th uh, there is an amazing golf hole, too. Um, yeah, I think the 18th is the best hole at the course. Yeah. It's absolutely astonishing. I mean, it's just that that hole is so remarkable. And uh, the thing that is crazy about it, uh, you know, and I saw this from the drone footage and the editing that Matt Ruchis and Cameron Hurtis have done for us. But if you look at that hole from above and overlay it with the Alistair McKenzie concept that won the Country Life Lido contest in 1914, it's basically exactly that. You wouldn't think it when you just play the hole because Alistair McKenzie's hole was like on the cliffs and it had like a little 
island cliff on the beach that you could play onto and all this crazy stuff. But if you just look at the hole from above, the arrangement of the fairways and the hazards and the angles that, you know, give the hole its strategic character are basically all in place at the Lido hole. And that's something I didn't realize before I really looked at it closely, but so fun to play and such a spectacular way to, to finish the round, you know, even on just a piece of land that doesn't necessarily have anything special about it. It's all pretty much built. It's just in the middle of the golf course. And they made this amazing hole, you know, truly has to be one of the best holes in the world. High praise, high praise for the AT. Um, all right, I think we got we got we got hit on a few holes there. Now for a quick break from our sponsor AG One. All right, this is something that I am doing every day this year. Is I am taking AG One. It is a, a foundational nutritional uh, supplement that I take every morning. It is super simple and easy for me to get off to a healthy start every day. What I do is I take a scoop of AG1, put it into their mixer that they sent to me. Then I, I fill it with water and I shake it up and I drink it. And really, it covers all my bases for the day. It is uh, it has gotten me off to, you know, a really, it's gotten me in a really good healthy routine for the year. And I really enjoy it. It tastes good. There's been some things that I've done with it that have made it taste even better. I've I've recently started to put it in smoothies. I also have done some coconut water mixes. Uh, so it's just something that it gets me going the right, uh, gets me off on the right foot every day. It helps with your gut health. It helps with your energy, immune system support. You know, it does a lot of things that just, you know, basically you don't have to worry about, you know, your, you know, kind of nutrients and, and different minerals that you need on a daily basis. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. That's drinkag1.com slash the fried egg to check it out. All right, now back to Garrett Morrison and our architecture pod. Josh White, how much does aesthetic, for example, of the bunkering play a role in our perception of if architecture is good or not? Okay, so... Like aesthetics would involve just the look of the built features at the course. That's what we're talking about, right? Yes. We're not, we're not talking about when a lot of people say aesthetics, they talk, they talk about the views or how pretty the property is. We're talking about the execution of the built features, the artistry of the shaping of bunkers, of greens, of fairway features, et cetera. It's very important. I think that maybe golf architecture nerds talk about it too much. Because it's something that can be seen in photos and something that we like to do is sit at home and talk about a golf course based on photos. And so aesthetics come up a lot in conversation because we're all looking at the photos and we're talking or, about them online. Or if you're talking with somebody, say you're, you're with one of your friends at a bar and you're talking mm -hmm. about a golf course you played 
what you do is you pull out your phone and you show a picture of the golf course, right? Yeah. So right. bunkers. And I think like this is where Frilly Edge and, you know, kind of that blowout bunker has become kind of synonymous with good. Right. Yeah. And, and people become obsessed with different bunker styles. Too many Frilly Edge bunkers. Let's stop those. Let's go back to something. And it's just like. I like having that discussion. I think it's important to talk about different aesthetic styles in golf course construction, but it dominates the conversation too much. We should be talking way more about playing characteristics, about how the golf course actually plays when you're physically on it. So that's one thing. You know, that said, aesthetics definitely factor hugely into my own assessment of a golf course. I, I wonder if you agree with that. I think that, you know, it's a significant part of the architect's job to come up with a style for a golf course that either fits with the landscape or clashes with the landscape in an interesting way and to execute that, to communicate with his team and his shapers or her team and her shapers to make a golf course look the way it looks in relation to its environment. Um, that is a huge part of being an architect and some do it way better than others. So it should definitely factor into the conversation. I just think maybe we talk about it too much, especially when it comes to bunkers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like a, a lot of times, like uh, a golf course will do a bunker project. It's like, we just need to enhance the the look and, and feel when you're doing something with bunkers. Like if the bunker project is like, I think a great example of this is like Conway farms, uh, a course that I, I grew up caddying at. They did, they set out to do a bunker project and you know, they, they didn't just do bunkers. They, they reworked some of the holes and you know, they could have they could have reworked them all. They reworked some of them. It's gotten significantly better because they did more than just improve the aesthetic of the bunkers, right? Um, and they worked with Jackson Khan. They re reworked probably four or five holes. They moved a couple greens. They redid a couple greens. They realigned bunkers, and the bunkers now have more impact because of that, right? It's not just and they look a lot better, but they have you know. Important thing with bunkers is do they serve a purpose? Right. You know? If we talked about bunker placement and whether a certain bunker should exist or not, the purpose of a bunker, as much as we talked about how the shaper manufactured the edge of the bunker, I think we'd be having much smarter discussions about golf architecture. Um, yeah, because a lot of courses have you know put in bunkers for stylistic purposes alone. And that becomes a problem because mm -hmm. here you are maintaining a bunker that's just there for the look. And I don't think that's a good enough reason always to put in a bunker. Sometimes it's a good enough reason, you know, occasionally, but definitely not all the time. All right. Question from uh, from the PGA Tour here. Michael Kim. Oh, what? okay. <laughs> I thought you. I thought it was like Jack Ryan or something. No. Okay. From a uh -huh. PGA Tour player. Yes. Uh, yes. Why don't people try and build more Harbor Towns, uh, uh, Harbor Town style courses? Is it because they can't sell homes on it? Doesn't Harbor Town have homes on it? It does. It does. I think obviously a Harbor Town was built during an era where 
golf courses were built with housing predominantly in mind. Yeah, um, but it even built kind of before that era really got going. It was one of the first to uh, incorporate a major housing plan into the design of the golf course. You know, I I don't think this is necessarily fair to either course, but I think Sedge Valley is more of a, a in a harbor town vein than a modern, you know, what we've seen with like modern vein. Small target greens, you know, precise play, lots of different options like whether you can push up, lay back type golf and and I think you know, in general, I think with Harbor Town, it's I haven't played Harbor Town. I want to be careful here, but like to me, I don't think Harbor Town I I really want to play Harbor Town. I want to see it. I want to play it. I don't necessarily think Harbor Town is like retail fun golf. Would you agree with that? What do you mean by retail fun golf? Like for a 15 handicap are they going to have like sure. a, a ton of fun out at Harbor Town playing from those trees all day? I think people like playing Harbor Town because it's a place where the pros play. It's an impressive looking course. It's a Pete Dye course. And so they sort of maybe enjoy the punishment in the way that players do at TPC Sawgrass. But absolutely, if it weren't a PGA Tour course, if it weren't built by a famous architect, I know that's taking away certain key aspects of the course (laughs) just for the sake of my argument. But if it were just, you know, a random golf course, I don't think people would find it super fun. It's difficult for a lot of players to, to play in corridors that narrow and that have trees so present in the line of play. I will say, you know, we we're getting to a stage right now. We've never seen so much golf developed, right? Um, in a yeah. long time since, and there should be variety. Yes, and that I think that's that that's my point is that everything can't okay. be expansive, wide fairways. Like I would like to see someone do something in the vein of Pete Dye or Harbor Town. You know, maybe a a new take on on that would be an interesting project. I think, you know, just in general the key to all of this, the key to everything like with golf architecture is variety, right? We want to have different types of golf courses. The second that there's a formula in golf architecture is when the, the craft of, of golf architecture really struggles, I think, and, 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 uh, loses a little bit of its luster. This is turning out to be a really interesting question. Actually, I have a number of different thoughts here. One is that yes, Harbortown is a cool golf course and Pete Dye was such an interesting architect and we're overdue for some kind of Pete Dye resurgence or for a new architect to really take direct inspiration from Pete Dye in more ways than just applying the design build philosophy, which is obviously a big part of Pete Dye's influence, but not as many architects have kind of picked up on his aesthetics or his particular way of challenging elite players, you know, there hasn't really been an architect like Pete Dye recently, and and maybe it would be great if there were. And so I, I would say that, first of all, I think that maybe people aren't super eager to build a course like Harbortown, exactly like it, because if you're building a new golf course, 
you're not necessarily looking to have your turf almost completely in shadow all the time. Yeah. It makes growing grass hard. It requires more inputs. It makes it's just firm more fat, expensive. It makes firm conditions really hard. And everybody makes firm to... conditions hard to achieve. And we see that year after year at the Heritage. It, that course is never quite as firm as you want it to be. And so I think that's a factor. I think that superintendents are having their say and encouraging developers and restoration architects to increase some light circulation, some air circulation, and make sure that the turf is healthy and economical to keep up. That said, I'd love for architects to experiment a little bit more with trees. Yeah. Not like dense groves of trees like Harbortown has, because that's when the turf problems arise. But how can we incorporate trees into a strategic golf hole? A tree here and there that is significantly in the line of play, I definitely don't have a problem with, especially if you're designing a golf course for elite players who can fly their ball over pretty much any ground hazard that you throw at them. So maybe we need to take to the air a little bit when it comes to this kind of championship hosting golf course and ask, how can we place lone trees or small groupings of trees to force players to think a little bit about how they're shaping their shots and what club they're hitting off the tee and what angles they're looking for into the green? I think that's something that Harbor Town does that not a lot of PGA courses do. Now, my final thought about this is that Michael Kim, very smart guy, Twitter influencer. I've been loving his discussions and activity lately. He did a what's in the bag recently on Twitter that I thought was awesome. Like as a, as a bit of an equipment geek, I was eating that up and saying like, thank you for taking the time to communicate with people about this. So I love what Michael Kim has been doing. Now I'm going to say why I think he's asking about Harbor Town, though. Maybe this is a little bit un unkind. You can check me here if you want. But I think that PGA Tour pros like to talk about Harbor Town because it's the type of course that if there were more of it, there wouldn't be so much discussion of rollback. Pros tend to say, we don't need a rollback. We need more courses like Harbor Town. Harbor Town is sort of the classic example there. And so if that's the reason that we want more Harbor Towns, then that's not a good enough reason because we should be building golf courses for amateur golfers who are the majority of the golfing population. We shouldn't be building a ton of golf courses or making decisions on golf development for the sake of PGA Tour pros and their desire not to discuss rollback. So I, I will I will bring that up. But uh you know, Harbor Town's a good course. And uh, for the sake of variety in golf development, I I wouldn't have a problem with seeing more courses sort of in, in that style, whatever that style might be. I'll, I'll take a question here that's related to Harbor Town. I respectfully believe Pete Dye is a very, all caps, very, he's yelling, very overrated designer. Overbuilt, rinse and repeat holes, maintenance nightmares. Can you change my mind? And this is from Christopher. Like I, I don't want to change your mind, Christopher, about run-of-the-mill, cookie-cutter, peat-dye golf courses, of which there are many. 
some of which were not built by Pete Dye himself necessarily, were more built by his organization, maybe one of his sons, and have Pete Dye's name on them. There are quite a few of those courses, and not all of them are particularly good. Some of them that I've seen are pretty bad. But to call him overrated, to call him very overrated, in all caps, I think is a real exaggeration. Well, it's Twitter, it's, or X. That's what we do on X. This is, do we need to call it X? I feel like I feel like we're well. It's fun. It's fun to call. Gradually it making it there. It's kind of just a joke when you call it X. I can't do it. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the DP World Tour, though. We're we're gonna eventually all just sort I, of. I still haven't gotten there. Given I still type still in call European, it European tour. I still type in European tour. It doesn't help that it's basically still called the European tour for business purposes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy they sold the name of their tour. The name. Yeah, that that's that's getting to another level. Not not an arena, not a golf tournament, but literally the name of your tour. Anyway, um so uh <laughs> Pete Dye overrated. Pete Dye uh is, is one of the smartest architects ever. Uh, and his best courses are absolutely brilliant for the purpose that he was building them. They were remarkable. The original TPC Sawgrass, the original Harbor town, those were works of genius in a lot of ways. And I think that if you're going to call those very overrated, I'm not sure where that's coming from. Now you can look at the courses today and say that they aren't what they once were. I think that's accurate. You can look at some of his mediocre courses and, and say that those are overrated just because they're Pete Dye courses doesn't mean they're good. But, you know, his approach to golf course design, his method, the design build method, the way he trained other architects, the reverence that Bill Core and Tom Doak have for Pete Dye, and the top tier of courses that die designed, I think all combine to make me say he was the best architect of his era. And he's somebody who should legitimately have an influence on future generations of golf architects. I've talked for long enough. Andy, what do you think about this? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I just think that if you looked at, look at his impact, some of his, his top tier designs, how they've aged, I think that's one of the things that I, I think about with Pete Dye is that they a lot of them are enduring. He built championship courses in an era where a lot of people built championship golf courses. His championship golf courses aren't being completely blown up. His modifications to championship golf courses aren't being dramatically altered. His championship golf courses have stood the test of time. He like at the core, I think like, you know, yeah, I, I would agree that some of his stuff's overbuilt. Um, I think like his use of catch basins is not great. Like there were some bad things that you could take, you know, you can critique there. But at the end of the day, he built strategic golf in an era when people weren't building strategic golf. Um, there are lines of charm. There are, you know, thing unique challenges that that confronted top tier players um harbortown being a great example and he built different styles too i think that's the other thing is that it was not a copy and paste type thing with pete Dye. he evolved he changed as an architect um and yeah like 
he built a lot of golf courses and, and, and some of them aren't great, but he built a lot of great golf courses in an era when great golf was, was not really being built. So I think that's the thing is that, um, you know, if Pete Dye if was coming in with this era and there was another Pete Dye that kind of shaped golf the way he did, I think Pete Dye probably would build a lot different golf today than he built in, you know, if he was coming up today than he built in 1960, you know? Yeah. And, and when we say Pete Dye courses are overbuilt, one thing to keep in mind is that he was sort of the king of building golf courses on shitty pieces of land. Yeah. Right. And so if you're overbuilding, you might as well do it on a piece of land that really doesn't have much to offer. And that's kind of what he did. So I'm okay with it. If he had gone to a site at Bandon Dunes and overbuilt that, then of course I would have objected to that and found that unfortunate. But that's really not most of what he was doing. All right. Uh, from G. McNair. If you could play only one architect's body of work the rest of your golfing life, who would you choose and why? I like this uh, th- question. This is a great question. Yeah, I saw this one come in. I was like, what a good thinker of a question. Because, you know, I would say probably Perry Maxwell is my favorite architect whose work I've seen a lot of. But there's not much Perry Maxwell architecture. I mean, if you include some of the courses that he built with Alistair McKenzie, then you can widen it up a little bit. But, you know, you're you're pretty limited there. There's a lot of Perry Maxwell stuff in Oklahoma, and, and not all of it has survived very well. And so I can't really go with Perry Maxwell there because there's just not enough of it. Do I then go with Donald Ross? Because there are so many Donald Ross courses, a lot of good ones, some not very good ones. So I'm a little bit hung up on this, uh, you know, this idea of how important it is that an architect would be prolific in this case, because then you'd have a lot of golf courses to play. Can I just change uh, Can I just throw something in here? Mm -hmm. I don't think a bad call would say I'm going to play core and Crenshaw courses the rest of my life. Yeah. Like we always talk about the golden age, but like if you said Tom Doak or Corin Crenshaw, I think like you're going to be pretty happy. You'd be set, especially. Yeah. I mean, if you were to play Corin Crenshaw courses for the rest of your life, there's plenty of them. Yeah. They've been working for a couple of decades and, they're, and like, there's basically not a bad one. Yeah. That's what I like. There's nothing. They're just, they're, they're ty- They're elegant. I think like, that's the thing when, when you talk about like the modern architects, like one thing, one thing I really appreciate about Tom Doak's work is that there's like almost like a restless creativity with him where he doesn't like to do similar things to what he's done before. He's always trying to do new stuff. The thing I always take away from Corin Crenshaw is just the elegance of their work. And yeah, there's some similarities course to course, but they're just so well done. And it just... You walk every time you play a core Crenshaw, you just kind of walk off like that was, yeah, that was a fun golf course. You you feel fulfilled. Yes. Yes. And I I think that what makes Corin Crenshaw really special and, you know, maybe the point of difference with Tom Doak, though I believe that Tom believes this too. Corin Crenshaw, especially Bill Core himself, are religiously devoted 
to the land. They always think that the land should be the main thing. And in that sense, Bill Corr is very similar to Perry Maxwell. And so Corey and Crenshaw are not going to a new site and saying, what new architectural stuff can we do here? They're saying, how can we make this land shine? And so if you look at photos of their courses, there are some things that look similar, their manner of building bunkers, their manner of building greens. But if you go to the courses themselves, what you get a sense of is the unique sense of place, the unique landscape of that golf course that that golf course occupies. And that's what makes all of their courses different from each other. It's the land that makes them different. I think Tom Doak is also very devoted to the land, does wonderful naturalistic architecture, but I think he's also often asking himself, what, what can new I do? built work yes. can I do here? That's I. That's the thing. I, I, I think that's like when you think about the, it's, it's always harder to talk about living architects, but when I think about those two architects, I think they, they are, clearly the architects right now of this generation in terms of new builds. Um, I think if you were talking about restoration work, Gil, you're going to talk about Gil, but like those two guys, especially at this point in their, at this point in their career, all they care about is new construction and they're kind of different in the way they think about that. And that's awesome. It's, it's such a wonderful thing for golf course fans is that mm -hmm. these guys are are dedicated to building their legacy of new builds, right? Through new builds. And with Tom, you've got somebody that's pushing the envelope. You're going to look back at his 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 portfolio work and be like, "God, look at all the variety in this in this portfolio." And I think you could look back at Corin Crenshaw and just be like, "What what a great collection of of just natural golf courses that use the land." I think like a great example of of like this kind of thought with Corin Crenshaw. I played Weekapot at the beginning of this year. It had been years since I had played it before the Friday I played it last. And um, you know, you play the first like three holes and you're kinda like, uh, eh, you know, we'll see what <laughs> you know, like and then you hit like the the really the great part of the land is it it occupies basically from the fourth hole on the land is dramatic and it's so not desert golf. And you're just like, it's, it's like buckle up. Like this is a great run of golf holes. And from like, basically I'm not the huge, a huge fan of the fourth hole, but from the fifth hole on, it is a spectacular golf course. And it's just the way the land is, you know, it, it, you, so yes, like, I think like, I don't know. If you went with Tom Doak with the modern, you get a little bit more variety. If you went with with Corin Crenshaw, you get just like kind of like I always like leave a Crenshaw course satisfied. Uh, right. Or Crenshaw. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 they get uh, A's every yeah. time. Right. You you know that it's going to be a good golf course if it's a Corin Crenshaw golf course. Now, if we lived in England or Scotland. We would probably give different answers Harry to this Colt question. Harry Colt could be an answer. Say Harry Colt would be an amazing one, especially Tom, if you included all the courses that he renovated. Tom Simpson would be an underrated one with continental Europe and and right. There's just not, not much. Not enough. 
but but Alistair it's McKenzie. all really good. We haven't even t- brought up Alistair McKenzie. I mean, right. Yeah. It's probably the first name that came to mind. We live on the West Coast and so that would probably be a I good don't think call this for is us. I don't think this is this is area dependent. This is this is not we're not talking about this as a realistic scenario. Yes. We're talking about it as a okay, whatever. Um I, I I kind of like thinking of it as a realistic thing though, because like what would I actually do? Um uh, if you were to choose old Tom Morris, you'd have a lot of great options as well. So um yeah it's those, a great question it's an amazing to, yeah. amazing you question. can talk about this for an hour for sure but yeah we should probably move on um all right uh let's do this as uh the last one of this part and then what we'll do is maybe we'll answer some more in another uh episode here um let's go with uh this ties into the whole theme of the podcast we've talked about Lido. we've talked about template holes um Andrew McCauley, thoughts on template holes? Seems like cheating or at least lazy architectural design. I mean, I think people know our thoughts on this, you know, and if you, when you say thoughts on template holes, you're talking about CB McDonald and Seth Rayner specifically, right? Or are you talking about the various modern architects who have tried their own hand at template holes? Those are two different discussions. If you look at C.B. McDonald and Seth Rayner's work, you can see that every single time, every template hole is different. So it's not just copy and paste. It really isn't. Now, I, I will say this. Sometimes I find it slightly unfortunate that at just about every McDonald and Rayner or Rayner golf course, the par threes are pretty much the same four ideal holes. Sometimes I wish that there were just more variety there, that I saw more ideas at the green sites. Now, they're all different, but that's where the template concept really becomes less than ideal for me. But if you look at the long holes, like if you think about the, about the, the 12th hole at the Lido, which is a punch bowl, right? That's the yeah. name of the hole. It's a punch bowl. But it has this diagonal carry off the tee. The green is pushed up in this amazing way. And then it's kind of hollowed out like a volcano, like an actual volcano, not a volcano green. But, you know, it, it's like it's like, a you know, Mount St. Helens. It, it's a yeah. volcano. That and you see, top. you see it early in the round because you play the fourth hole and you see it's it right next to it. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, that's that's something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and the hole is called punch bowl. But is that like a copy and paste template? No. no, it's it's its own unique golf hole that has a punch bowl concept. And that for me, especially when it comes to the long holes, the par fours and par fives, every McDonald and Rayner hole, template or not, is so unique and adapted to the site and has different ideas in it that it doesn't seem to me like cheating or lazy design, as the question puts it. Now. When some modern architects have tried their hands at templates, the results haven't always been the best. And sometimes it does seem like it's a little bit lazy. Maybe you should have come up with an original idea here or at least modified the template more so that it was more unique. Um, And a good example of where a lot of modifications happened and a lot of adaptation happened was at Old McDonald. You know, that that course is very much in the spirit of McDonald and Rayner. 
because it takes the templates as a general sort of guideline, but does its own thing with them. And I think when modern architects are trying their hands at templates, that maybe that's the direction that they should be thinking. Yeah, I think with with templates, it's a uh, it's a charge topic, right? And it's become certainly in vogue. Um, it's something that's been talked about a lot. It's something we've talked about a lot. Um, I definitely feel like we're 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 you know a contributing factor to some of this discourse. Um, but I would say I think like. We're getting to the point where maybe it's it's getting a little overdone. Where there's a lot of template golf courses. I don't think we need another. Like we have a there's a lot of Rainer McDonald golf. We we already have plenty of them from from and that I don't, outfit. I don't yeah, necessarily exactly. think we need much more Rainer McDonald inspired work. Like it's it's great. It's great. And like the thing about it is like you can do Rainer McDonald inspired work and not tell anybody. You know. <laughs> That's like, right. You don't have to name the hole. You don't have to advertise it. But yeah. but th- then again, this whole idea of a template hole or of an ideal hole was kind of a marketing tactic tactic from the beginning. Yes. It was an architectural idea. You know, I don't want to discredit it in that way, but certainly CB McDonald was a very good promoter. And one of the things that he was doing with the ideal holes was trying to communicate to an audience, to market to an audience what he was up to. Yeah. And and listen, like I think like people there are a lot of original work that are just it, it's you see golf architects see golf holes, see golf courses and then say, "Oh, we could do something like the fifth hole at Royal Melbourne here." You know, we could do something like the eighth or the eighth hole at Augusta here. You know, like twelfth hole at St. Andrews. Yes. Like this is this is the way it works. They see you see they see golf courses and then they see landforms that remind them of the golf courses they've seen. And then it's like, okay, we're doing a fresh take on this. Template holes, like everything in architecture is kind of built around architect like it's it's adaptations. Everything in a way is a template hole, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is how artistic influence works, you know? Yes. Like people take the stuff that they love and they put it into a mixer and they you know take what comes out and that's their quote-unquote original work, but it's always influenced. Tying back to the question about bunker aesthetics is that you could build the templates the template par threes, and if you didn't have trench bunkers, if you had the frilly edge bunkers, I don't think they would be instantly rec- as recognizable as the Rainer stuff. Like people wouldn't walk up to the Eden hole and be like, that's the Eden hole. Yeah. They wouldn't walk up to a short par three and be like, that's the short. Right? Be- it's part of it is the the aesthetic. If you change the way the greens didn't have the rounded but uh geometric type shapes with rounded corners not square please please stop <laughs> please, please don't do the right angles <laughs> please stop <laughs> please, the, the right angles that's 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 victorian stuff there yeah. that's like, please please stop doing the right angles everybody but if you took away if you changed the style then people wouldn't be like oh that's the template holes uh, right out of the gate like Baritz, you're still gonna recognize the Baritz, right 
But I don't think people would necessarily recognize the Eden hole or the short hole if you change the bunker style, the green shape around mm-hmm. a little bit. M- much less some of the other more obscure templates. I mean, like, is anybody really going to identify Rec- a green hole. or, yeah. or a, yeah, the bottle hole or a yeah. hog's back? You know, these can just become sort of free floating concepts that architects can grab onto and use in different places like a hog very much back. like the redan hole has right, the hog's right? back is a great template hole like if yeah. you see a, if you're trying to design a golf course and you see a big ridge in the center of a landing area that repels on either side are you doing template holes or are you just using a great natural feature right yeah right. it's it, you know it's funny i was i played golf i'd love to we have a great relationship with uh jackson and con you know these are guys that they they loathe the template holes. They <laughs> they loathe the reverence of uh, of 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 uh, of old architecture. You know they they believe yeah. they can build different stuff. They they got t- takes. Yeah, they were talking I, about. I, how- I like this attitude out, out of an architect. I do too. You know, there I, there are not enough architects who say you know the past is bullshit. <laughs> I can do better. So they 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 were talking about how they don't build template greens. They don't build template holes. Blah blah blah. And we were, we were playing at Scottsdale National, which we just did a video. It's a really cool golf course. It's an amazing golf course. Um, truly like a golf course, one of the best modern golf courses I've seen. Um, but they were, they were on, we we're on the fifth green out there and, and they've, they've, they give me all kinds. Of, I wore a Rainer Man hat just to piss them off, you know? <laughs> um, and, and they, they were on the screen. And I'm like, you know what? This is a maiden green. I'm so glad you guys built a template. And, you know, it's just like some of this stuff's impossible. Like it's a hog's back fairway with a maiden green. Like, congratulations. Like, you know, like that's not template architecture. It's just finding, you know, or building really cool features. Yeah. Um, and And sometimes they are. So I think the thing, one of the things with templates, like obviously the par threes get battered around a ton. I think one of the great things about template par threes is it ensures variety. You have a 150-ish yard par three. You have a 180-ish yard par three. You got 210-ish par three, and you got 240 par three. Like that to me is like a bulletproof, like first step to having good par threes. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the idea that people should take away from Rayner and McDonald's architecture it's not that you need those four holes specifically. It's that you need some variety in the green complexes and some variety in distances and preferably some variety in direction. That's the real takeaway. And I think that we could maybe do a better job of that in general with template holes, extracting some of the ideas, you know, what's behind what makes this template hole great. Take the basic idea and you can apply that to other golf courses you don't have to just reproduce the whole yeah yeah i agree i agree well hey we'll do part two of this uh sometime soon we're gonna do part two yeah Yeah. that would be fun there's a a lot of different questions questions. there's yeah i mean sorry if we didn't get to your questions we we got a ton of good ones coming in it's been a while since we've done one of these so i think people have been uh, gathering up questions and so we appreciate that All right. We'll talk soon, Garrett. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andy.
you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. And thanks to Matt Ruches for editing and producing this pod. Thanks, Matt. He's been killing it on uh, on our reels on Instagram. Uh, that's a good reminder. If you don't follow us on Instagram, if you don't follow us on YouTube, if you don't follow us on X or Twitter, be sure to do that. Uh, we just put up a new video. I mentioned it in the pod, but on Scottsdale National uh, building of Scottsdale National. It's super cool. It's way different than anything we've done before. It is about taking something, a, a nothing site, and turning it into one of the best modern golf courses in the country. Uh, I believe that. And uh, it is it is a neat video with lots of you know construction scenes, including blowing up stuff. Uh, Dr. Bob makes an appearance, which which was great. I mean, he honestly is a is it like a very uh, had some great traits as a golf course developer where he kind of let Jackson and Khan uh, do their thing and uh, was patient with his opinions on the golf course once it opened. So that is up on our YouTube page. I'd highly recommend checking it out. I think it's a, a super compelling video. And we will be back next week with another edition of the podcast. Thank you and uh, talk to you soon.